And so there are a lot, a lot of comments basically attesting to broad ranging opposition to this rule on the grounds that it violates both the spirit and the letter, frankly, of international refugee law. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On May 11th, a pandemic-era policy known as Title 42 will expire. This was a Trump administration policy which used public health concerns as a pretext to expel migrants from the United States before they could claim asylum under U.S. and international law. Title 42 has continued under the Biden administration. As I record this 10 days ahead of the expiration of Title 42, American officials are preparing for a massive increase in the number of people seeking asylum at the southern U.S. border. Some border towns like El Paso have declared a state of emergency, and President Biden has ordered 1,500 troops to the southern border to support Customs and Border Patrol. Joining me to help explain both migration patterns in the Americas and the Biden administration's approach to migration at the southern U.S. border is Yael Shaker, Director for Americas in Europe at Refugees International. We kick off discussing one key node in an increasing number of migrants' journeys known as the Darien Gap. We then have a broad discussion about the patchwork of U.S. policies intended to handle asylum claims and offer a legal pathway to entry to the United States. And as you can see from our conversation, this is shaping up to be a humanitarian crisis and a bureaucratic crisis all rolled up into one. Now, here is my conversation with Yael Shaker of Refugees International. First, can you just situate the Darien Gap geographically for listeners and explain why it is significant to trends in migration towards the southern U.S. border? The Darien Gap is a strip of jungle that's basically between Colombia and Panama that kind of connects South America with Central America and then onward to Mexico and to the U.S.-Mexico border. 
And it's become increasingly a tremendous crossing point, not only for people from South America, like Venezuelans, but also people coming from the Caribbean and even people coming from beyond the hemisphere. So we're seeing large numbers of people using that migration path. And one of the reasons that migration path has become so much more prominent is because other pathways have actually been closed off in recent years. For the people coming from the Caribbean, of course, coming by sea is not really an option to the United States. For the people coming from places like Venezuela, there are new visa restrictions in different countries further north that they used to get to by plane, and now they sort of need to take the land border route. It's extremely dangerous. There's not a lot of humanitarian support there. Smugglers are the primary people sort of bringing people through the region. Once people get to Panama, however, Panama sort of had been allowing sort of free passage through Panama to further north, and that also made it an appealing entryway. Things may be changing in that regard, though. And my understanding that this is just, as you said, a very treacherous stretch of land. There are no roads. You have to cross by foot. People are vulnerable to everything from like snake bites to people smugglers to unscrupulous local gangs. And not only that, but the number of people using this pathway towards the southern U.S. border has increased something like sixfold this year compared to last year. I was just looking up some statistics from the U.N. before we chatted, and they've estimated about 100,000 people just in the first you know, four months of this year have sought to make their way through the Darien Gap. Yeah, I mean, it's becoming like an Ellis Island type situation where it's the way that people like kind of transit. It's it's kind of amazing. And people are coming, as I mentioned before, from, you know, outside the hemisphere. There was a good story a few days ago of a rising number of Chinese people coming through the Darien Gap. I mean, still much, much lower numbers, of course, but it's widely spread on social media It's widely known as a way that people are now crossing. And I think it's a product also of other routes being closed off, right? People would not be taking this if there were a lot of other ways to get through. And one of the things that the Biden administration hopes to do is actually provide alternative routes. We're not there yet, though. So this is one of the only ways, despite how dangerous it is. And not only are there more people going through, as you mentioned, and from more varieties of countries, but also a lot more children. The statistics of young children, families with young children going through, more unaccompanied children going through have really, really risen. And so in the face of these just sharply rising numbers, again, like a six-fold increase this year compared to last, the Biden administration has apparently like partnered with the governments of Panama and Colombia to try to curb illegal migration through this gap. What do we know of that plan? Unfortunately, like very little. Yeah, I was trying to like do some research on it and there's nothing. There was an announcement of a plan as far as I can tell, but not much publicly available information about it. That's right. And I, you know, I work for an NGO. We haven't received a detailed briefing about that either to kind of put a little bit more meat on the bones. What is clear to me is that it's mostly focused on cracking down on the smugglers, on the people who transport migrants through the Daring Gap. As you mentioned before, it's an extremely treacherous journey and you need a guide. You can get 
less expensive or more expensive guys who will provide you with less or more services along the way in terms of like tents and things like that. But a lot of what this is, is about cracking down on the people who facilitate the migration through. There's, you know, starting points, starting cities in Colombia, sort of endpoints in Panama that they may be targeting with this effort. You know, Necocli is one of the towns right in Colombia where people take off for the Darien Gap. There are other places in Panama where people end up, and it may be that that is where the effort is going to be. I can just say that there's no indication to me now that this is much more beyond a crackdown on smuggling. I didn't get the sense, although one kind of confusing aspect of the announcement was the role of AID, USAID. Usually they're not involved with migration control efforts of this kind. It wasn't clear what they would be providing, presumably some sort of humanitarian support, but they're not even in the humanitarian, they're in development, you know, they're not quite a humanitarian focused organization. So it's there are a lot of details remain unclear. So what does both this sharp increase in the number of people seeking to reach the southern U.S. border through the Darien Gap and the kind of opaque Biden administration policies towards the Darien Gap suggest to you about either trends in migration and also the trajectory of the Biden administration's policy towards the southern U.S. border as we approach this deadline on the ending of Title 42? So there's a few things. I think in terms of migration trends, I already mentioned the cutting off of other pathways through visa pathways, through flight. I do think that there's a push factor involved here where we're seeing many Venezuelans who are traveling through and Haitians as well, whose numbers are also going up. These are people who are already in first countries of asylum. They may be in Colombia itself. They may be in Chile or Brazil. Those countries, especially Chile, life for migrants in those countries has apparently not been good. They can't support their families. So what we're seeing is a lot of secondary migration. Chile is sort of cracking down on migrants right now. So there are policy changes in some South American countries and there are economic problems, an inability to really stay in a first country that you flee to and a feeling that you can't support your family there, so you need to move on. Or you may be subject to detention for being in a regular status, and there's no way for you to regularize your status. You know, a lack of regularization and economic opportunity for Venezuelans and Haitians in other South American countries are pushing them to continue the journey to move again, right? So that's one migration trend we're seeing. It's not just them, it's other migrants too, but those are some of the the largest nationalities moving through the gap. In terms of the Biden administration's plans, I think what they rolled out most recently since the announcement about sort of enforcement in the Darien Gap, they've also rolled out these new pathway programs. Actually, one of the pathway programs was rolled out a couple of months ago for Venezuelans, more recently for Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans, which is sort of this parole program, which allows people from those four nationalities to apply to travel to the United States by air, to create a way in which people can bypass the gap and even bypass the U.S.-Mexico land border altogether, which is clogged with folks and fly into airports. That program has existed for the four nationalities since January. 
for Venezuelans since October. And it's being used, but there are certain eligibility requirements for it. You need a valid passport, and you also can't have traveled through the Darien Gap or entered unauthorized into Mexico after the beginning of the program in January. So many of the people now moving through the Darien Gap or have moved into the Darien Gap in the recent months would be ineligible for precisely that pathway. So that's unfortunate. But this past week, the Biden administration said that its restrictions on asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border that will be rolled out beginning at the end of Title 42 on May 12th are being coupled with some additional pathways from the hemisphere. There was an announcement of the creation of basically a regional processing center for people to access legal pathways in Guatemala and Colombia. The problem is, is that these regional processing centers, which might process refugees eligible for refugee resettlement in the United States or for parolees, additional parole programs that the Biden administration plans to roll out for people who have family members in the United States. We don't have many details about them yet, and these regional processing centers have not actually been established yet. And we're speaking just 10 days before the expiry of Title 42, and this was like a long-expected expiration of Title 42, but the Biden administration has not yet even set up those processing centers in third countries, like you said, like Guatemala, to support the processing of asylum claims prior to someone reaching U.S. soil. Right. Just as a point of clarification, you can't apply for asylum except on U.S. soil. You can apply for refugee status. You might be eligible for one of these parole programs, might be eligible for other legal pathways, uh, visas of other kinds. They hope hope to channel more migrants into those pathways rather than have them seek asylum at the border. But as I said, they're not established yet. You can't access them yet. And many of the people who are currently passing through the Darien Gap and on their way to Mexico right now are ineligible for the parole programs that already do exist. I just wanted to say one other thing, which is that, you know, since January, the Biden administration has been expelling people to Mexico, asylum seekers to Mexico under Title 42, not only Central Americans, but also people from these four nationalities, Venezuelans, Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans. It's rolled out this new application that you use on your phone to access ports of entry called CBP-1 to make an appointment to access ports of entry. But there's a lot more people sort of waiting in Mexico again to use this app. Plus, they're the people being expelled by the United States. So there's already sort of a backlog at the border. And of course, there are more people coming, the people who have been traveling through the Darien Gap. So I think what we're already seeing is a sort of a rising number of people coming to the border, which is why I think the Biden administration is finalizing a rule this week that will put limits on who can access asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. And Is that rule about who actually can claim asylum and access asylum going to be consistent with international law around the ability to claim asylum? It's hard to say exactly what the final rule is going to look like. If it looks anything like the proposed rule that came out at the end of February, the answer to your question is no. And we know this because The rule basically precludes people from seeking asylum or with some very, very narrow exceptions that will be very hard for people to prove 
they'll be precluded from seeking asylum if they haven't sought asylum in another country on the way and been rejected, or if they cross between ports of entry in order to seek asylum. And both of those kinds of bans on access to asylum are prohibited by international law and, frankly, by U.S. law, which says that you can seek asylum whether or not you've entered at a port of entry or not, between ports of entry, and also says the only countries that you know you would be barred from seeking asylum in the United States from is with a country with which the United States has a safe third country agreement, like Canada. We don't have any safe third country agreements with any country south of the border on um, the United States doesn't. So basically, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, has already wrote a scathing comment in response to uh, the regulation, the International Organization for Migration also raised more um, humanitarian concerns about the number of asylum seekers who would basically be pushed back into Mexico and all the other countries in the hemisphere having to sort of take more people in, which they can't already handle, while the U.S. takes less people in. It's not exactly responsibility sharing in an ideal sense, asking other countries to do more when the United States does less. And so there are a lot, a lot of comments basically attesting to broad-ranging opposition to this rule on the grounds that it violates both the spirit and the letter, frankly, of international refugee law. I mean, you're describing a situation now that just seems poised to become an even greater disaster at the southern border than we've already seen. You have this patchwork of legal pathways for people to come to the United States or claim asylum or seek some sort of relief or or parole. You have a just massive number of people heading to the border, already at the border, who will come May 12th, seek to claim asylum on U.S. soil. And it seems that the United States is just incapable of, of handling this influx. Like, What do you foresee happening in the coming weeks at the southern U.S. border? Are we in for like a massive humanitarian emergency? I do think that there are going to be a lot of people stuck on the Mexican side of the border or expelled back to the Mexican side of the border, either trying to seek asylum at ports of entry using this app or otherwise, and you know, basically waiting their turn, like queues, like long queues of people just waiting and waiting and waiting. And I also think we're going to start to see While people were expelled from the United States under Title 42, which just basically meant they were returned, under the new asylum rule, if they are rejected, they will be deported, they will be removed, meaning that they're like sort of barred from reentry to the United States, which will really mean that Mexico is going to have a lot, a lot of folks on its hands. So I think that is going to be a problem. There are still going to be a significant number of people entering the United States through ports of entry and through through these parole pathways. I should say that like, unlike sort of like England, which basically wants to end access to asylum and isn't providing any meaningful legal pathways to the United States, the Biden administration is trying with these parole pathways and other ones to actually provide relatively capacious, I mean, large pathways to the United States. The question is, is like, the sorting of all these people. I mean, some people are eligible for some pathways. Some people are not eligible for them. And asylum is like supposed to be everybody's eligible to at least seek asylum, right? And that, I think, is where we're going to get this big bottleneck. The third issue is that 
In the United States, asylum seekers, if they were permitted to enter the United States and seek asylum in the United States, let's say they entered through a port of entry, there's very little support for those people. There's no benefits. They have to apply for a work authorization to work. And depending on the numbers, you know, what we've seen in the past couple of months is a lot of busing of people from place to place and some cities in the United States feeling like they've got too many people to handle because there are no basically federal benefits these folks are eligible for. And so there also needs to be worked out on the U.S. side of the border, a way of receiving people in a humane way and providing for their basic needs as they're seeking asylum. So I think there's a lot that the U.S. can do better to manage this. But I do think that there are going to be a lot of people waiting or recently deported on the Mexican side. And I think that's going to be pretty clear soon after May 12th. Yeah, I mean, I'm speaking to you from Denver. And earlier this year, you had a number of cities in Texas just, you know, fill buses of migrants and send them to Denver. And the city here just kind of scrambled and created like an emergency shelter and like a rec center. I would imagine that that might be replicated like across the country in much larger numbers as you're seeing more and more people try to come through the border. I do have to say that, you know, just like a way to alleviate the pressure on the border would be to create meaningful, fast, right now, they need to be available now, right, pathways to the United States from elsewhere in the region. Like if those centers were already set up in Colombia and Guatemala and they were already processing a lot of people on these parole programs, there are more of them and more people could fly into airports rather than come through the border. That would be one way, certainly, of relieving pressure on the border. Another thing that needs to happen in the United States itself is that more communities, big communities, small cities, towns need to actually say like, yeah, like we'll welcome asylum seekers here. We'll provide for them. We'll figure out ways for them to integrate. It's kind of easy for the U.S. to criticize other countries. I was criticizing Chile before for its like anti-immigrant policies You know, the United States, many cities and towns need to open up their hearts and figure out ways of integrating people because like Denver, you know, New York, I live in D.C. We had the same situation with buses coming here. Um, There are cities across the country that if we actually want to manage the number of people coming to the border on the U.S. side, we actually need to do it at the local level in a lot of places. Lastly, If you're advising the Biden administration on how to approach a sort of realistic and humane policy at the southern border, what would be your top few recommendations, again, as we approach this May 12th deadline? Well, I think one of the biggest problems I see is the fact that a lot of these policies are not even attempting to sift people by the merits of their claims or whether or not they're even an asylum seeker. So right now, if you use this CBP-1 app and you make an appointment, you should be able to access the ports of entry, but you don't necessarily need to be an asylum seeker in that case, or whether or not you have a strong asylum claim doesn't mean you have 
ensured access to the asylum system. It's just whoever happens to get an appointment is able to have access to the asylum system. So there's like a bit of randomness in all of this. So that the different pathways that are being created aren't really attempting to sift for need and aren't, certainly aren't attempting to, to match the asylum pathway with the people who have strong asylum claims. There's this assumption that people who cross between ports of entry somehow by definition, have less meritorious asylum claims. I mean, there's really, but that, that's just an assumption. It's, it's not based on anything. And so there's really no attempt to really sift people and to understand what different populations really need. If we want to design migration pathways, we really need to start doing that. That would take a little bit of weight off our asylum system and really sort people into the pathways that actually work best for them and most meet their needs. And the other major thing that needs to happen is both coordination with countries in the region in the sense that being realistic about which countries in the region are safe and can take on and really provide secure, dignified life for people on the move in the hemisphere. So maybe Guatemala isn't a safe country. I mean, maybe we should not consider that the place where all asylum seekers should go or figuring out exactly which countries it's realistic to think could take different amounts of asylum seekers in. Kind of sorting that out, a real shared responsibility that's based on something more than just saying that there should be a responsibility, but really an assessment of what different countries can do, right? Just like we want to put people on pathways that are right for them, we want to have a, a real understanding of which countries are safe, which countries can provide what for who. And then the last thing is more about coordination on the U.S. side of the border, what I talked about before. I mean, the Biden administration needs to do a lot more to support states, municipal governments, coordinate with them. Right now, the only thing that's available, and it's better, is money through FEMA to help local governments and NGOs really do the work of reception. But that's like sort of only short-term relief. It's basically immediate food and shelter for 30 days only. And like what happens later in cities like Denver or New York, like long-term housing, getting people into jobs, integrating people into society, getting people access to attorneys, all of that stuff isn't covered. And that is where we're seeing municipalities feeling like they can't handle folks. If we really want border policy to change, and we really want more people to have access to asylum at the border, we have to make it possible for them to live in the United States, you know, in that status. So I feel like there also has to be work domestically as well. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. This was helpful. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>